Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotty. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. We have one film left in our new Argentine Cinema Marathon after we discuss Lucretia Martel's 2008 movie, The Headless Woman. This is our marathon presented by Mubi, cult classic independent films from around the world. Every day, their experts introduce you to a film they love, and you have a whole month to watch it. So there will always be 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. Our listeners, Josh, can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting, M-U-B-I.com slash Film spotting to redeem that offer now. Martel, the only filmmaker in this five film marathon who has two movies on the list. And Martel was one of the driving forces behind the marathon. We were very interested in her work, had, I think, a provocative discussion about La Cienega a couple weeks ago. And now we've talked about her 2008 movie, which comes with some pedigree. It played at the 2008 Cannes Film Festival, also the Locarno International Film Festival, and on the BBC's list of the 100 greatest films of the 21st century, published in 2016, they put The Headless Woman at number 89. And we should note also, in marathon fashion, there is a tie-in. Right. Martel, after a long break, 2008. Agnes Varda also has a film out now. Just like Agnes Varda, Martel has a new film out this year, Zama, which I just heard about recently. Hmm. So it's it's the film spotting marathon touch, bump, something. Whatever you want to call it. There's a little bit of magic, we hope, going on here. Somehow, though, we haven't revived Brisson's career. No. Or Satchajit Ray, well, as much as, there are as much as we'd like to. So let's get to The Headless Woman, a film where the plot is sparse, just like it was in La Cienega, though I suppose there is a little bit more of what we would consider a traditional plot here in that we have an incident that takes place early in the film. A woman who is a dentist named Vero, short for Veronica, has some kind of an accident on the road. She leans down to answer her phone, and half a second later, she hits something and hits her head in the process, decides that even though she knows she left something back there, she's going to choose to just leave it back there and drive on. And the rest of the film is really about her then kind of processing that decision and her guilt or lack thereof. I think that one of the provocative questions of this film for me, well, I thought it was a provocative question, but off air, you said, no, we know the answer to this. It's simple. (laughs) Maybe we'll get there. We'll spoil the film a little bit at the end. I do think we have to at least entertain a discussion about did she really do what she thinks she did, which is she 
fears she's guilty of killing someone, that it wasn't just a dog like some of the people who she confides in tell her, but maybe she did actually kill someone. We'll get to that, I think. But I want to start with a different question, and the answer to it may be determined in part by your answer to this. I just want to know how you feel about Vero. And as we think about these films we're talking about that have no connection to each other, at least they shouldn't. We're focusing on the work of Darren Aronofsky this week in the main podcast. This could almost be an Aronofsky film, doing very different things visually, but we have a main character who is unraveling a bit psychologically before us. There's nothing in terms of cinematic flourishes akin to the way characters lose their minds in his movie, but we do see her reckoning with, I suppose, guilt. And I wonder how you feel about her, even as I still consider, as I sit here, how I truly feel about her as a character. Do you like her? Do you empathize with her and her predicament? Do you despise her? Do you feel something else entirely towards her? So I am completely sympathetic to Vero. Really? Because I've had a guilty conscience before in my life. And if you have a fresh one and you watch this film, you're screwed. Because this thing puts you under the lights. And yeah, we'll get to the question of whether or not she should feel this way. But uh, it certainly depicts her as feeling this way and makes us feel that experience, that emotional state of being intensely. It's interesting that you bring up Aronofsky films. Mother Uh is maybe the one it most resembles, not because of the guilty conscience element, but stylistically. It's so mother, the camera is all over Jennifer mm-hmm. Lawrence, right up in her face, following her closely. And though the camera isn't as intense here, Martel puts us yeah. so close uh-huh. to Vero and what she's experiencing, especially in the first third of this movie, where we're not quite sure what's going on. I was a little confused. And the reason is <laughs> because she's confused. Yes. And we're so one-to-one with her. Yeah, You know, it. it's it's just this daze that she's walking in. Mm-hmm. She goes to the hospital after this accident. And she might actually be concussed for the record. That's it could what it be feels like. more than that, yes. but certainly that behavior comes through. And she wanders off. Uh, she gets a room at a hotel to compose herself before going home. But what's really interesting is when she does get home and her family members, her servants – uh, which is an element we also saw in La Cienega. Yes. It comes very we'll much get to into those. play yeah. here. They all push her right back into her daily routine. They don't even seem to notice because they're preoccupied, particularly her husband, with their own things they have going mm-hmm. on in their life. And it was interesting to see. It was almost like she was playing a game. How long can I go on with my normal life without <laughs> like really even lifting a finger? People just kind of say, oh, you should go to the office now. Or don't you want yeah. this? Uh, they're dressing her and she's become this zombie. Then we get to pick up the clues as to why and the guilt that's put her mm-hmm. in this state. Uh, the movie moves towards attempted confession. Um, it's – yeah, this thing is – Absolutely a ringer to watch and masterfully done. The performance by Maria Aneto mm-hmm. as Vero absolutely has a ton to do with that. What a challenge. She's playing a character who's almost catatonic, yet somehow brings us within that state yeah. by just, you know, certain intakes of breath, um, fluttering the eyes here and there. Mm-hmm. Very minimal, very minimal things, but are everything we need to, yeah. to to feel this way. Well, like with La Cienega, it seems that we had 
pretty much the exact same experience with this film. And if people are wondering, why is Josh talking about Mother as if Adam hasn't seen the movie, as you'll hear when you get to the main show this week, I wasn't able to make it to the screening as planned. We still did our Aronofsky show. Michael Phillips had to step in for that review. But as you were talking, another reference came to mind, and this is one that you won't really get, and even I don't totally get it, because as some have asked me on Twitter, I never did make it through all of Twin Peaks The Return. Things got away from me. I'm watching too many movies like The Headless Woman on Sunday nights, and I'm not able to fit in Twin Peaks. But I think I got five episodes in, and Kyle MacLachlan's character in Twin Peaks, he's playing a guy named Dougie Jones here. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like Vero here, where he is certainly way more heightened in terms of his detachment from everyday life. He can't really even form a coherent sentence. But he goes back home. He goes to his job. Everyone just keeps pushing him. He's clearly not all there in any way, shape, or form, and yet... Everyone just puts him back into his routine the way they do with Vero here. I was actually thinking about the answer to my question, doing a little pro and con kind of catalog of her. And I'm sure there are things I miss, but she's someone who, if you want to strike against her, she does something where she knows something bad happened. She hits something. Most of us, I think hopefully all of us, would stop to investigate, see if someone or something needs help. She chooses. Here's another theme running through recent shows. Deny. She chooses to just pretend nothing really did happen, at least for a little bit. She's not going to investigate. But then, on the positive side, she does feel guilt. She eventually confesses to some people around her. And as you said, 100%, we can all relate to feeling guilty. We all have secrets we can cling to. Now, on the strike side, she's undeniably bourgeois. And who wants to be bourgeois, especially in these types of films? There's a reason why these satires keep getting made from Boonwell to Martell and plenty in between. They're often terrible people, not necessarily evil people, right? They're not knowingly doing bad things, though some in Boonwell films do. It's just the way they are. If that means treating their servants, these natives, these lower class people badly, well, that's just part of their lives. And we do see that come through in her probably in multiple scenes, but one in particular that stands out to me is when she's buying some pots from someone and he can't get him down because he has a bad back and one of these native boys is supposed to come on another day and get him down and she's like well you know I don't have time to just keep mm-hmm. coming back here yeah it's it's that kind of moment how about the great visual marker of her bright blonde hair which the right. movie spends a lot of time yes. focusing on that absolutely and her style of dress sets her apart from most people but particularly this indigenous class no, you're that's right. always around her serving her yeah and depending on how you want to judge her for this she does have i'm not sure a fling with another man. Maybe it's part of a larger affair. That was never totally clear to me, but it's with someone I think we're supposed to see as being at least partially related to her. Yeah, I was kind of crossing my fingers it was cousin. Yeah, I think it's it's a cousin, maybe even a cousin of her husband, but she may be dealing with some lingering guilt about that. There's guilt about her mother, I think, and she seems to be kind of just bedridden and her final days approaching. So there's a lot of guilt in this movie, and there are all these elements that make her, in some ways, a really unlikable character. And yet, as you said, Josh, we associate with her because of Martel's camera, and I think because of that performance. I was trying to come up with words to describe it, and I don't mean glowing superlatives. I mean just literally definitions, ways mm-hmm. to describe it to someone. The only thing I could come up with was introverted. She projects nothing outward to you. There's no real emotion 
But that's completely different than an empty or blank performance. Right. And this never is that. But she does make us as the audience interpret how she's feeling. And we spend the whole movie interpreting her face and those really subtle reactions and the shifts in her behavior. And after that accident, it's essentially her point of view for the rest of the film, where every scene, whether she's conscious of it or not, she's kind of like a detective in the movie, picking out little details of things she hears or things she sees and the way people react to her. It's as if she's looking for some clue to unravel this whole mystery. And then that heightens our sense of awareness. We become detectives like her and we're constantly listening and we're constantly looking for some little secret, some little nugget that's going to help this all makes sense. And in that way, it's a very engaging viewing experience, even if on some level, while it's completely different in so many ways, it's like La Cienega and that it's hard to call it satisfying because I don't know that Martel's capable of making a satisfying movie in any traditional sense. She's sure. not about giving you any moments of, of real warmth or tenderness or joy. That's just not what these films are about. No, certainly doesn't seem to be. You know, another touchstone that came to mind while I was watching it was the work of Pedro Almodovar mm-hmm. in just the matter of it illuminating the interior life of this particular woman. But it's almost like Almodovar muted or in slow motion, right? We don't get any of these. It's what you were just talking about. There's not that liveliness no. that we associate with him. I do like the connection, though, of uh, the specter of the dead factoring in. You mentioned her mother, who at in one really harrowing moment Mm -hmm. claims she sees someone dead in her house just as a kid enters the frame. Mm -hmm. And here maybe we can move into the question of what (laughs) might have happened on the road. Uh, And and then it turns out that it's it's actually a boy who's in the house that the mother didn't. But there's – Volver deals a lot with that sort of element too. So yeah, yeah, I saw some connections there. But this is very much the – colorless take on that sort of story that Martel is interested in. Yeah, it is. And I think some of the framing here and the way she uses the camera here and sound again, I don't know that the sound is quite as pronounced as blatant in the mix as it is in something like La Cienega, where we're just constantly aware of all these dreadful things going on as we discussed during our review of it. But I remember a scene pretty late in the film where she goes back to the hospital where she was checked out the night of the accident and she sits down in the corner of the frame. We've got this wonderful widescreen shot, even though it's an interior, it's not this beautiful landscape by any sense, but she's in the corner of the shot. And then we have another person sitting next to her and in the other complete distant corner of the frame, but there, and we can't help but look at it is another examination going on. Mm -hmm. And the conversation we're hearing is the conversation from that room. And there are probably other ones going on in the scene too, but Again, we get to that idea of an engaging viewing experience. You're hearing all these different elements and you're seeing all these different elements and you're not even sure sometimes where it's coming from or what you're supposed to be looking at. And I suppose that could be frustrating for some viewers, but I did find it pretty fascinating overall. Another example of the camera work that I really appreciated is when we are with her as she's in a car in the back seat with her family. And here's another clue. Maybe she did hit something because there are fire trucks and there are people doing a search for a body that is down in a canal. And 
the camera is in the back seat with her as they turn a corner. And as they start to turn or when they're on the road initially, when we see what's going on, we can see unfettered what's going on. It's looking past her hair, the back of her. We see a lot of the back of her head mm-hmm. in this movie, but it's looking past her. But then as it turns, it's it's right behind her. And so we are getting what she's looking at, even though we can't quite get around her. So Martel's kind of playing with us in that point of view a little bit there in that moment. But just to go back real quick to that question of how we feel about her, the thing that really stuck with me about this movie, where I do empathize with Vero by the end of the movie. And by the end of the movie, I think you could argue that you should probably feel the least amount of sympathy you felt for her at any point in the movie. Agree. And yet, what I realized is, where I feel for her is... I think one of the questions the movie might be posing is if you can do something terrible or even just be convinced that you did something terrible, really the worst thing a person can do, take another human life. If that can be wiped away so easily, that terrible act can be wiped away so easily. If any record of you and your involvement in it can be wiped away so easily, and even you can just change your hair color and go on with your life, then Who are you really? You want to talk about being a ghost. Are you even real? I think that's kind of the realization she's having at that end of the film is, is what is this? What is this life I'm experiencing if all of this can go on and it can just be a situation where no one knows it even happened or that that I even existed in some ways? Well, it's a warped one. And here's another visual clue. The final sequence is a Vero and her family and some friends, all this bourgeois class some sort of party at a restaurant, shot through what appears to be a glass door. The glass, yeah. And it's this very unnerving Mm -hmm. effect where from a group shot, they all look a little distorted. But as the camera moves in closer and their faces move, they come into clarity Mm -hmm. and then they get warped. Distorted again. And distorted again. And each person – and see, that's – the clues that I found that indeed she did hit this kid – were not the obvious ones like the newspaper report of a body being found or the fire trucks Mm -hmm. that you mentioned, but something like that moment when she first stops the car and there's a child's handprint on the window next door, which belongs... No, no, no. Let me finish. I will. It belongs to other kids. We know which kids. Okay. In the very opening scene. Oh, okay. Those are children who have been playing in the car and there's a joke like open the windows, you know, get out of the car. We know where those came from. And it's not the kid we think she hit, but it's a ghostly impression. Yes, it is. And I was aware of it watching that scene as she's driving down the road before she's hit anything. And now, of course, I would love to know how I would have felt about it and would I have noticed it if I didn't know the basic plot description. I'm pretty sure I knew she was going to hit something because I had read that basic plot description. It was in our show notes when we were talking about this marathon and promoting it. So I had seen that. And so I was aware that something bad was going to happen. And I think because of that, not really knowing whether it involved a kid or not, but knowing that there was something inherently foreshadowing and really ominous about those handprints, those ghostly handprints on the glass. But as you said, I remember them from the opening scene where we see the kids in the car playing and then we see them on the the glass before she hits anything. So sure. it's not as if you're right. It's not literal no, no, no. That, that she hit something and, and the kids' hands ended up leaving a no, mark I didn't on, take it on the glass. Way, I don't but but it was symbolically symbolic. or metaphorically... Yeah. Yeah, maybe it is supposed to directly suggest that she did that. But the things that make it complicated, I suppose, are when she looks back 
we see what is pretty clearly a dog in the road, not a boy. I rewatched this scene a few times, and it's pretty clearly a dog in the road. And I think the answer to that would be, well, no one's disputing that. There was a dead dog in the road. It was the dog that belonged to this kid. Right. And Who so we see in the, opening the kid ended up the in the canal right. where he was found later. The dog ended up being left in the road. I don't know. If it was me in that situation and I did stop and looked and saw a dead dog, I wouldn't also think probably, well, did I kill a person too? Sure. But she, she seems to fundamentally know something that no one else really believes. Everyone else is in that state of denial where they immediately just tell her, no, you just had a scare. Everything's right. fine. Let's all just pretend this didn't happen. And she can't do that. So I can empathize with her in her inability to completely move on. And yet at some point in her life, she does clearly make that decision. She falls back into her normal routine. And while she seems from time to time a little bit haunted by it, she does nevertheless move on. Yes, but tortured. And I would argue even at the end. And here's maybe the reason, the ultimate reason I read it that way. Again, there's no literal evidence. I think Martel purposefully leaves it yeah. unanswered to a degree. But her theme that she was interested in in La Cienega, and again pops up here, um, the class critique, the social critique, yeah. and the relationship between those in Argentina of European descent and those of indigenous descent and how these are two separate worlds. This is a recurring question for her now over two films. The only reason Vero would drive away, the only reason why her family would assist in covering it up, and the only reason she would get away with it so that mm. they could party at the end no, you're right. is because she hit one of these kids who was from right. the indigenous class yeah. because they're not people. If one of her family they members got matter. hit, there'd be an article in the newspaper. Everybody would be talking about it. There'd exactly. be a search going on and there isn't. Exactly. And so that makes, for me, The Headless Woman, not only a film about personal denial mm -hmm. and guilt, but national denial yeah. and guilt. And and again, because it's a recurring theme over two films now, I figured that made the most sense. And, and also, you know, made that distorted picture we get at the end makes sense as well because they all may think things are fine. Mm -hmm. She's acting like things are fine right. because they think there's no record. We took care of that, mm -hmm. that she went to the hospital. We've covered it up and no one's going to care because no one cares about these people. No, you're right. They don't count. Uh, but because we've been so personally attached to Vero, we know that it's still going to gnaw at her and she can go to a party. She can change her hair. But she can't really escape it. She can't escape it. Yeah. And there is something I think inherently Hitchcockian about that hair, right? I was thinking of Vertigo a lot and sure. thinking of a certain past, a ghostly past, being wiped away by that appearance change. And even something like the scene with the mom, I think it's where we're introduced to her, and they're watching a video, it seems, of Vero's wedding. And the mother can't remember anything about the day or the past. Now, mm -hmm. she's suffering from some kind of illness, but there is something about that relationship with the mom where there's maybe— There's a bias towards Vero, too, Yeah, right? there is. there's another yeah. sister who's there who mm -hmm. the mom seems closer to or maybe a cousin. I, I didn't quite get the family right. dynamics. No. Certainly the mom and Vero don't have— a strong relationship. No, they don't. And there just seems to be some easy ability to kind of, as you put it, to look look away from a past, whether it's one filled with trauma or filled with some kind of terrible act like this history, as we're seeing through these two films, Martel clearly wants to explore something in Argentina's past 
and it's present. That's the that's really the thing that makes it so vital and I suppose scary in a way is that it's not as if these movies are period pieces. This is about contemporary Argentina. Right. And this type of dynamic and this dismissal of these so-called lower classes and these native people is very much ongoing. And so that's an element that ties it back to La Cienega, again, the only two Martel films we've seen, but you could tell unmistakably that they are both her films because they're about those extended families, the bourgeois families, the fact that we've got that Indian boy and all the class and race exploration that is part of this movie. How about water? Water is a huge part of this film. It starts raining immediately yeah. after. Big storm the weekend big storm. of this accident. And the first movie was called The Swamp. And not only do we get that big storm in the rain, but the fact that she multiple times takes a shower and washes her hair and changes her hair color. And there are swimming pools and discussion among the gossipy women about how pristine the water is or whether it's being contaminated. Multiple times they talk about the canal and how full it is. And then even the pool or a fountain that's buried in their backyard, Mm, like mm -hmm. so many of these secrets, just bubbling underneath. Of course, we talked about maids. It's set in the same region near Salta. That notion of some kind of incestuous relationship links both movies. We talked about the fling or affair she has with the character. And then there's even something that I certainly would like to explore more in that relationship with the niece who suggests suggests that she's in love with Vero and Mm -hmm. maybe always has been, which connects back to one of the subplots of La Cienega, the sound as we touched on, is a crucial part of this movie in terms of always keeping us a little bit uneasy. And as I said, hoping for a clue, maybe that's somehow going to make this all make sense. I think one more touchstone, we haven't thrown out enough of these, I suppose, in this conversation, Josh. I thought of Cachet a lot because that's another movie dealing very much with personal and national guilt and denial. Though, as I'm remembering that film, one of my favorite of the past 10 to 15 years, that's a movie where the family that is under assault for their perceived actions in the past, they're not aware of it. Or at least they have so completely wiped it out of their memories and have dismissed it that they don't remember their complicity in those acts. And it's about them coming to the realization. Yeah. And this this is a movie that opens with the act. And in some ways, initially anyway, as viewers were kind of watching Vero going, no, you probably really did just hit a dog. Like everyone else were going, why are you, why are you so insistent on, mm-hmm. on placing the blame on yourself? Why do you insist on feeling this tremendous burden of guilt? And I think the answer lies in these other issues we're talking about. It's, it's not even so much the guilt for what she did or didn't do, because it would be very easy to go, well, I hit a dog. I hit a dog and I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't do that, I think, because all it's doing is is tapping into this collective guilt, mm-hmm. right? That she and her family feels or should be feeling and finally can't completely overlook it any longer. That is The Headless Woman, the fourth film in our Argentine cinema marathon. You can find the full roster of films. You can find out how you can view the movies if you're so inclined at filmspotting.net slash marathons. The last movie coming up, Wild Tales, Some of our listeners have already seen this movie. They've recommended it. It was a movie that we heard about from many people as we were considering various titles and was up for the best foreign language film at the 2014 Oscars. So we should have a lot to talk about, and we hope you'll join us. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.